Hi guys, welcome back to the Performance Principles Podcast. Episode 3 is coming up shortly. Firstly, I just want to say thanks again to all the listeners who have tuned in to the first couple of episodes. Or if this is your first listen, then welcome. I hope you enjoy the upcoming conversation. Uh, just a reminder as well to follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find us at 4 underscore principles. If you have any queries or questions about some of the things that we've discussed so far, feel free to get in touch. Today's guest is Camilla Henderson, who is a sports performance psychologist who, since finishing her studies, has worked in a variety of sporting environments with a range of different athletes. She's currently working with Swindon Town Football Club, as well as being the sports psychologist for Worcestershire County Cricket Club, working with the entire playing and coaching staff there. We spoke about her early childhood sporting memories and how growing up in a hugely passionate, hardworking and successful sporting family has shaped her career. We talk about the role she sees a sports psychologist should play within a team environment and we also go into a bit of detail about how mental imagery or visualisation can help athletes overcome issues which links quite nicely to the last episode with Ian Goff who spoke about his experiences using the technique to overcome a mental block around a previous injury. I really enjoyed this chat and I feel like there will be definitely someone out there who will be able to take one or two things away from the insight that Camilla provides. So without further ado, here's episode 3 of the Performance Principles podcast with Camilla Henderson. Afternoon, Camilla. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. You've joined just from work, haven't you? Yeah, it's been a long day. I think Fridays are often like my most busiest of the days, cramming everything in that I've realised I've not got all done. <laughs> okay, well, I won't keep you too long. Um, I wondered if you could start off by talking about your sporting background, really, and just briefly map out for the listeners the path that you've taken to get where you are today as a sports performance psychology consultant. Um. Yeah, okay. Well, I kind of started obviously with horses. Um, that was probably something that wasn't necessary. It was just ingrained in our family, really. My whole family have ridden horses. My dad was a jockey. My mum was a jockey. She was also an event rider. Um, so yeah, I think not really out of choice. We were just all plonked on horses at the age of two, three. Um, and it got to a point where I actually hated it. But um, then it was kind of like a choice. If you want to carry on and you want a horse, you look after it. Um, so yeah, one sister stopped it, one played polo. I carried on uh, doing eventing, three day eventing. So that's dressage, show jumping, cross country. And, and I just carried it on really. Um, it, was, it was never anything I could see myself not doing. Um, but I, I did it up to sort of a quite high level, represented GB sort of when I was about 16, did sort of all the pony team stuff. Um, then I went off to uni I did psychology as an A-level really enjoyed that and I knew that event riding wasn't going to be a career it it never really is it's kind of like an amateur sport event riders kind of make their money through um, buying and selling horses Uh, you don't get paid to event you don't get paid um, to compete it's actually a very expensive sport Um, it costs 80 pounds just to turn up to a one-day event so it was a passion, it was a hobby, but I knew it was never going to be a career. Um, and then obviously I started riding racehorses as soon as I was big enough and strong enough to be able to hold one, because um, I was quite little and quite weak, and I would always get run away with at home on my dad's racehorses and be kind of like the laughing stock on a Saturday morning. Oh, Camilla's getting pissed off with there up the gallop. <laughs> um, so then I, I finished three-day eventing, 
and I started race riding sort of around the age of 17, 18, and I got my amateur license out. So you actually have to sort of get a license, pass fitness tests and all sorts of schooling tests and stuff like that. So over the fences with an actual um, coach. And I, I, I then race rode for about 12 years and I, I finished probably about two years ago. Um, so cool. yeah, it's been really enjoyable. So um, if we go back briefly, talk about the three-day eventing. It's obviously something that I'm not hugely familiar with. So that's the one where you said it's the dressage, the show jumping, and the... Cross-country. Cross-country, okay. So what's the most difficult aspect of that? And am I right in thinking that you need to have quite a close relationship with the horse? Yeah, I think in terms of equestrian stuff, like horse racing, get on the horse, race it. There's plenty of jockeys that wouldn't even know anything about the horses they sit on. But yeah, eventing, your horse is your own. You train with your horse. Um, I'd say all three phases are very different. The dressage is, is uh, what a lot of people say is the, the dancing around the arena kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah. different movements of walk, trot, canter, different movements, like, for example, uh, sort of pirouettes and getting the horse to turn like 360 on, on the, in a sort of one position, um, crossing its legs over. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Half <laughs> and uh rain back so getting your horse to walk backwards stand and then walk forwards um so yeah it's it's really hard a lot of training goes into that so it yeah. was really hard for me to continue when i was at university um obviously when i went, went to loughborough i was driving two hours home two hours back like twice a week to have a dressage training session so yeah a lot of work goes into it and it's a, not just work for yourself it's work going into your horse and your horse training performance um show jumping is probably the most psychological psychologically uh sort of challenging aspect uh, like most of my clients come to me because of the sort of the show jumping phase um so that's obviously the colored poles that can come down yeah <laughs> and you get faults you get four faults per pole or per fence that you demolish um and that's a really really sort of challenging um phase because of pressure i think you're in an arena uh the fences come down easily um and and obviously there's a course to remember and you've got to keep rhythm flow um and that kind of thing and, and horses you know all different sorts of horses are going to be really really difficult and i think that's the one thing i did do growing up is that i was always encouraged to ride a lot of different horses to sort of you know test your versatility really and, and i was never afraid to get on a on a different horse um so a lot of my clients you know actually just ride the same horse every day when i was yeah. growing up my mum said no get on my horse and then and then when i started riding out the race horses you turn up you're told you look at the list and you're told which horse you're guessing on i most of the time wouldn't have ever heard of that horse and you get on that horse so i've always had that sort of mindset of no fear like you've got to just go and do it um and that, and and then the country. sorry yes yeah sorry and that that no fear does that come from that versatility and that all those different experiences of those different horses yeah definitely definitely it was always just to try it out you know don't not to be fearful and i've had my fair share of nasty falls i've broken plenty of bones i've been in hospital many times um i don't know maybe that was the kind of mindset instilled from my mum but it was always if I had a fall, she'd be like, oh, I'll give you 50p if you get back on and get over that <laughs> fence. 
but now it's all very the other way. It's all, oh, if you don't feel comfortable, um, don't have to do it, you know. Um, yeah. So it was always the mentality of you get back on and you do it. You're not going home until you, because, and I, I actually loved that way of doing it because you're going to be more annoyed if you go back home knowing you've left it on a bad note. Sure, yeah, and it's the the rocky road to success, isn't it? Like no one ever, no one ever has got to the top and succeeded without falling off the horse, metaphorically, or or literally in your case. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, you you mentioned your mom, your father, and your grandfather, I think. So, you know, your, your dad, obviously, Nicky Henderson, six-time jump racing champion trainer. Your granddad was a huge name in in the racing world too. So, what were your experiences like growing up in that family? And, and looking back. What lessons did you learn in that environment that have stood you in good stead in your professional career? Um, I think what myself and my sisters learned is that, yeah, how with my father, like his, his job was his passion, but it was always actually always being second best to the horses, knowing that the horses are actually more important. It was always, the conversations were around horses. But yeah, I think having horses definitely uh we definitely learned a lot through having to actually just look after a horse at a young age it was like your responsibility so I think that was great but from my dad in terms of of his sort of application to his what I've learned of him is just he loved what he he does he's always loved what he does and I think he's always said you've got to do something that you love what you do that it never feels like a job and he works day in day out every day his house is on the yard there's no switch off as we know from horses they don't have a day off on Sunday we still have to look after them he'll still go around and and look at all the horses especially if it's run on a Saturday he'll go and look at them on a Sunday there's no switch off there's always an owner that's going to be calling there's always a jockey to talk to there's always press to talk to so there's no switch off so I have a huge amount of respect for that never a switch off never a day off but yeah very very hard working and doesn't stop so I think I've definitely got that from him because I'm a bit of a like just don't stop kind of mentality um hence why you're here today after working all day already so yeah (laughs) that's great and I think um I think the passion thing that you're talking about there and you know on myself I've been lucky enough to to have done that myself and do something that I've loved doing and it doesn't feel like work um so we're obviously incredibly fortunate to be able to do that yeah um, if we move on now, just to talk about your your sports psychology background, really in terms of in terms of your studies. Um, so, you know, how how did you get into it? Um, where did you go to study? Um, and then, what did you do finishing your studies? Um, yes, yeah, so I actually did psychology as an AS at school. It was like a new subject, so it was like, oh, this is fun. Um, so I did it, and then halfway through, our teacher left. <laughs> so we did. We did like an open learning course at school with the history of art teacher. So that went well. <laughs> Managed to pass. Yeah. Um, a lot of them failed, didn't do it for A-level. I think two of us survived. And uh, we actually both went to Bristol together and did. I did like the foundation psychology degree, the BPS one. Um, so a lot of people I do work with end up being really interested in sports psychology. So I'll always say as any advice that anyone thinks that might be something they want to go down is always make sure you get the foundation degree first, which is just psychology. Um, I did the applied course. And then in your third year, you can sort of pick different modules. So I picked um, counseling, um, sports psychology, obviously. I remember I did body image. Um, So my research was actually looking at body image within sport. And I did sort of 
different sort of brain neuro areas and addiction. Okay. Um, and then obviously at that point you can decide whether you want to go clinical or not. And I, I, at one point I did, I wanted to go down clinical, I was looking down criminology, um, which fascinated me is why people make crimes and why people behave the way they behave. But then I was like, no, what's my passion? Sport, love psychology, actually I'm going to collate that. And then my kind of vision was I want to be the equestrian sports psychologist. I want to kind of be the niche for equestrian sports. Okay. I, I noticed with sort of jockeys and horse racing, there wasn't a lot of support there. Okay. So then I decided to go to Loughborough. Thank God I got in. I was meant to get a first, didn't. Somehow got in on my niche of being the equestrian, the equestrian one. Um, and it was quite a small course. It was only 12 of us, but it was great. There was a, a real range of different people and everyone had their own sporting areas. You know, there was a guy that worked in martial arts, judo, all that kind of thing. There was a, a girl from India who represented her country playing tennis. Uh, we were all very different, but we all had our own passion. And actually, most people were sort of competing at a high level as well. Um, so I loved that. Completely different uni experience. Did that. It was a full year. And then after Loughborough, um, started my training uh, sort of slightly later on to do my sort of stage two. Started working then at Bristol Rugby. So I was there for four seasons. Um, initially started with my supervisor and then I started doing a bit of work there on my own and then working with some of the pros initially started with the academy and then started working with pros and then I got the job at Swindon Town Football Club um, and I'm still there uh, so I've been cool. part of the furniture really yeah and, yeah and then so alongside that also private clients as well cool how have your experiences since you started doing your consultancy so straight out of uni um, how have they sort of shaped your philosophy as a sports psychology professional? Um, I'd say my practice has definitely changed, obviously since reflecting on some of the work I've done and CPD stuff I've done and, you know, different qualifications I've added onto my, my CV per se. Um, but I think I've really learned about myself as well as a person, as well as, you know, um, extending my area of expertise my area of skill but I think the more work I've done in sort of team environments I've learned a lot and also like working alongside other sports psychologists I think it really helps to bounce off each other because it's quite a lonely world like I'm always on my own you know I can switch on to zoom and, and skype but I'm actually a lot on my own so great about working in team sports it's you're actually in the environment you're actually there working with coaching staff um, so actually, yeah, where I wanted to move my, my sort of approach was to sort of actually help more within the sort of deeper fundamental background of like helping the staff uh, from a coaching perspective, looking at the environment. So yeah. not just working one-on-one. -on -one. So like at Bristol Rugby, it was very much, oh, can you work with player number whoever? Um, yeah. Because he's struggling on this. But actually now if I was putting together an intervention, it's actually to say, well, it's really important that I help the infrastructure. I help yeah. the, the head coach with how he wants to articulate a plan for a session or even a physio with how he goes about a certain conversation around injury with a player. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of helping the whole dynamics of the environment really. And I've learned, I've learned a lot of different approaches along the way. And obviously you learn trial and error of what works and what perhaps in the past hasn't worked. And I think, there's always going to be experiences where you think, 
no, I could have done that differently. But in hindsight, obviously, is a great thing. But yeah, I've definitely learned a lot of new skills through some really, really tough experiences. And yeah, also, you're not going to get on with everyone. And you're not going to click with everyone. And I think initially when I, I started, you had that perception of wanting to help everyone in a team. But now it's just kind of accepting there are those that want you for, want to use you for sort of performance related um, challenges, for some more well-being related. Um, and for others, it's just being around the environment for, you know, a chat. Um, even if it's a, you know, chat around, what shall I cook this girl on my first date for dinner? <laughs> You know, it can be literally... Have you had many of those conversations? Yes. What do you, um, what's your advice? Like, um, make sure you, you know what they're allergic to. <laughs> it's a good start. <laughs> a good steak. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, my job is definitely varied, but not going in with a mindset of wanting to change the environment and help everyone. It's unrealistic. It's just kind of almost... Sometimes now the approach I go to them is I'll say to the head coach, what do you want? What are the changes you want? What are the problems you're facing? What's the end in sight for you? And yeah. then helping them with that. So it's not burdening myself with trying to do too much. Yeah. Um, Who do you find easiest to, to try and work with in, in terms of create change, players or coaches? um good question um it depends it's all completely on individual differences and their own characters and stuff but particularly my work at Worcester we've actually done some profiling with all the coaching staff so I actually know kind of their core means of their sort of behavioral styles and mindset styles so I know when I'm working with an absolute polar opposite so an absolute polar opposite of me is someone that's very logically orientated so it's just kind of I think understanding first everyone's differences and where we might conflict as a group um but yeah with with players i think it's um you sometimes just gel with certain players in terms of the work you're doing the interventions you're doing but at the moment we're trying to collate uh, the intervention between having coaches involved in one-to-one -one sessions with myself and the players so actually it's a bit of a three-way um sort of approach um, so yeah. it's a bit more multidisciplinary um, and, and encouraging players to talk more to their coaches about some of the things they talk to me about, whether that's performance related or even more sort of lifestyle related. You know, for example, if a player's feeling really burnt out and they're talking to me about that, like it's a real problem, but actually the coach is getting a completely different perception of what he interprets as the problem in a training session. And for me, that's just communication lockdown. Um, so sometimes it's just a means of going, have you actually articulated this back to the coach? Because I don't believe the coach understands uh, your point of view or what, yeah. what challenges you're faced with. So sometimes it's just information gathering and, and, and sort of providing something back to the player to say, have you thought about this? Yeah. Sounds like you, in that sort of example of having that three-way conversation with a coach and a player and yourself, you know, that to me suggests that it requires a quite special environment in that team, in that club. Because um, I can think of, I can think of many environments where a coach wouldn't be happy or wouldn't feel right doing that. And certainly from a player's point of view as well. So have you had much success with that type of stuff or is it something that you're just starting right now? 
to be honest, at the moment, with the players that are doing that, we've got about four or five players that are really, really keen to get their, their coaches involved. And I think that is a massive, massive um, plus from our environment in terms of there's a lot of trust. And I think there needs to be trust and in, in grounding in that. But a lot of them have some really, really close relationships um, with their coaches. So they want to share that information because they know that obviously, especially now, I'm probably not going to go back in this season if play does resume. So actually, the discussions that we're having in those sessions needs to be reciprocated um, and sort of reflected on in action, in, in training. So if the coaches know more about what they're working on, then that's going to be more useful. So yes, most of this work is performance orientated. Yeah. Um, of course. So for example, batting routines, specific bowling routines that we're working on at the moment, it's going to be so much more helpful and insightful for the coaching staff to actually understand, okay, this is his process. These are some of his keywords. What might he do to kind of switch on and off? Um, so if a player's having a bit of a moment, obviously it's going to be so useful if the coach knows exactly what their processes are and and sometimes it's just feeding back to them in those moments of what do you think you should do here not telling them but saying what do you think is the best option here um so then we do reflective um sessions back after training sessions if they have missed a training session then we'll then have a bit of a review um and we're using video analysis at the moment which is obviously really helpful cool well it sounds it sounds really interesting and you know, I think the environment socially as well, not just culturally in, in sport, but um, there's a big, been a big push uh, recently with the mental health awareness and that kind of stuff. And people are more, uh, probably more likely now to talk and be honest in, the, in those types of environments. And I agree, I, c- I only think it can be a good thing and it surely can be sort of like a springboard to creating that culture, which uh, if you listen to stories about any successful team over the years in whatever sport a lot of that discussion is about culture and about the environment and it's hugely hugely important yeah I think still it's hard like I'll always say at the end of the day it's men men are less likely to talk about their feelings and I'd say in the environments I work at at the moment there are some that that are very sort of almost wear the heart on their sleeve and very open but naturally in that environment, it can be quite a sort of male dominating environment where, yeah, they don't want to always exploit their feelings or, or sometimes it's just if the player's taken a bit of fun to the wrong way or just feels a bit pissed off about something maybe, um, but doesn't want to say anything. But if, if we were w- working with the, the girls squad and I've had feedback from the coaching staff with the girls they said it's totally different they've got a problem they say it they'll say it they'll voice it they won't hold back so much easier to work with but with the boys if they've got a problem quite often you don't know about it yeah but you know if they're in a mood or you know if they're trying to avoid you so sometimes it's like second guessing um so i suppose in my approach i'm quite direct i'll say what's up (laughs) clearly something wrong yeah and we know players really well. So you know if they come in and they don't really engage or they don't ask how you are, like it's pretty obvious for most of them. Um, so it's sort of picked up. We try and be as transparent as we can, but I think that's definitely a work on, that we're still trying to get players to talk and, and, and be open and be honest. And, you know, if something hasn't gone well for them, 
you know, to say that. And some of them did last season. Some of them said, you know what, I want to get up in front of the group and I want to, I want to talk to the group about this. And some like real profound, groundbreaking stuff. And I was like, okay, if that's what you feel is, is going to be helpful for you, let's do it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a movement. We're still working on it. Brilliant. And I, I think that'll probably be similar in many other environments. You've touched on there the, the sort of differences between male and female athletes. Um, so what are your experiences? I think, I think I'm right in saying that you've worked mostly in, in male-dominated environments. So as a, as a female working in those environments, what have, what have your experiences been? And do you think it works in your favour? Um, do you think men are more likely to, to open up to you because, because you're a woman? Um, again, I think it's personal preferences. I think the head coach's perspective on it was, I think it's good for there to be female presence in the club for that reason is that, you know, might the players want to open up a bit more in terms of anything that's non-cricket? Because quite obviously we all know if, if something's not okay at home or we've had an argument with our partners or we've not had a good night's sleep the night before, it, it will affect your mindset and your training. So sometimes, yeah, you need to have someone that you can talk to about other stuff other than performance because it affects our mindset at work um so yeah I'd like to think that most of the players are comfortable talking to me but even if it's if they can get some of those conversations whether it's out of myself the physio um our PCA health welfare officer um even you know one of the groundsmen or um anyone you know as long as as long as all players feel comfortable to talk to someone, I think that's the most important thing. And it's definitely not my agenda to feel like I have to get everyone on that level with myself. It's they can use me how they want in that sense of whether that's performance related or well-being. But I think in terms of a female being in a male dominated environment, like that wasn't something that ever intimidated me. I know it could be uh, for peers, you know, sort of trainee sports sites going into those environments can be intimidating but I think I don't know how I've looked at it has always been exciting challenging but I basically didn't know a lot about cricket I knew the basics um I didn't know a lot about the environment I went straight in and within two weeks I was off on a plane to Abu Dhabi and my housemate was like oh god you're so brave doing that I was like I know I don't really know them but actually it was it was just, I just jumped in at the deep end and they were all so friendly and so lovely. And um, yeah, it was quite like a, a big thing, but I thought this is going to be the best way to actually get to know everyone. You know, you're having lunch, breakfast, dinner with them every day. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think it's healthy to have that in the environment. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, we've talked a little bit about cricket then, obviously you work with Worcestershire but you've worked in a lot of other sports as well. I've worked in rugby, you mentioned, football, you've mentioned, obviously your horse racing, horse eventing as well, athletics, rowing. So are there, are there common challenges that you see in athletes across all those sports? Yeah, I'd say the, the biggest challenge where people want to call me up from a sort of deficit point of view, you know, what's, what's going wrong, is probably nerves, anxieties, self-doubt, you know, like that's common across sport. Um, I think maybe in, in cricket, what, what's been quite common has been sort of, yeah, developing confidence and self-belief in, in what they're doing and how they're applying themselves. Um, and sometimes just 
you know sticking to the basics like sort of helping them with sort of goal setting helping them get to targets that they've always talked about but not really got to and how they might go about that so it's just helping them provide a structure those kind of things um equestrian sports common theme is injury had a bad fall so the amount of people that call me up saying oh i've had a traumatic fall i think i'm suffering from ptsd um those kind of things i haven't got back on my horse since i've had that fall uh, that's really really common yeah um, so sometimes i'm working with equestrians who are not elite who are not necessarily competing but they've gone through a really sort of traumatic um fall Physical where they might pain. actually physically squashed by their yeah. horse yeah yeah not fun um and with jockeys it's it's more around lifestyle how they manage their weight wasting um being self-employed no support when they're injured dealing with injury as injury is very very common because obviously jump jockeys are, are falling off regularly um and flat jockeys are having to keep their weight down so a lot of wasting so that has a huge implication on their mindset so i think jockeys have it hard i'll often tell the cricketers you've you've got it good here <laughs> compared to jockeys yeah <laughs> brilliant um in episode two um i spoke with ian goff rugby player and he spoke a little bit about an injury that he suffered links into what you said there about some of your clients suffering physical pain and maybe having some sort of mental blocks uh, and ian said that uh, he was really struggling post-surgery uh, with going into tackles. I think it was a shoulder injury. And he spoke about visualization and mental imagery and how he how he sort of worked really hard with that and how it helped him overcome any sort of mental block he had about going into those big challenges. So what are your experiences with visualization and mental imagery? I think it's been hugely, hugely um, useful in my work but I think it needs to be done the right way. And I think players need to be given enough tools so they can um, sort of try and practice it properly. And, and, and there needs to be a sort of a bit of a feedback response. Uh, Cause quite often people will say to me, especially say a question and they'll say, you know, I tried to visualize that fence that I fell at that cross country fence. I fell at last weekend and I kept trying to get over the fence and I just kept falling that will happen they'll keep falling they'll, they just won't get over it so you've got to have the right kind of framework to start off with is to know what are you going to visualize why are you doing it um so I think with the right tools with the right um sort of professional help and guidance is really really important um but I think it can be used for so many different things really in terms of like if we want to like get rid of a habit or um in ian's um example in terms of how he actually overcomes like a mental block which was in terms of protecting his shoulder almost stopping himself what he said going into a ruck wasn't he he was almost stopping himself in training so i think the first thing is to start with that awareness are you actually aware of of, of, of the situation are we aware of our problems um so awareness is always the, the thing we need to start off with first what habits do we want to change? Um, what does it look like? So just having a really clear goal of what it looks like first is really important before we start to visualize. Um, but it's a powerful tool for our behavioral change and a mindset change. So whether you want to change a habit, um, for example, changing a specific skill set, technique, skill acquisition, for example, in your bowling routine, 
or whether it's just a mindset change. Um, for example, getting quite threat focused when batsman's just whacked it for six and changing that mindset perspective from threat to right seeking the opportunity for the next ball what am i going to do reset yeah um do you not am i right in saying in suggesting and i might not be and obviously you're the expert but would you not need to change your mindset before you change your behavior do they come hand in hand yeah I think you can look at it from different perspectives. Like some, most of the time, yeah, I would say we talk about mindset because it's how we set our own precedent, isn't it? Yeah. What we think is often then encompasses what we feel and what we feel then encompasses and protracts onto what we do, our actions, our behaviors. But sometimes it can be helpful to tap into the behavior first. Okay. For example, like that faking it element. Yeah. We're working with a bowler who's really, really hard on himself. Like, for example, low, low self-esteem, self-doubt happens, sort of triggers quickly. Is that actually it might be more helpful for him to engage in that behavior straight away, which might be visualizing the chest out, head up, or what back's my mark. It might be easier to tap into that behavior first to then get into that mindset of, right, reset okay it's having a meltdown internally it's like think of the behavior yeah um, or for I example think... a dressage rider um going oh. up the center line so at the beginning they go up the center line okay yeah. the if they're really really nervous okay so that's a mindset it's a feeling i've got a lot of nerves i'm feeling sick maybe sometimes we'll focus on in that visualization is the behavior which is like head up mean business bring it on and it's what does that behavior look like going up the center line? Okay, yeah. That, um, that reminds me of a story that I once heard Stuart Broad talk about, I think, as well, which is obviously um, relevant to any, any cricketers listening. Um, and anyone who watches uh, Broad Bowl, sometimes when he walks back, well, most of the time when he walks back to his mark, mm. he's always looking up, he's always got his chest back, he's always got his shoulders back, sorry, uh, chest up, his chin's up, he's always looking up. And I remember him speaking about that and he said he made a conscious effort to, to sort of pick someone out in the crowd or pick someone out in the top tier of the, of the stand or a seat or whatever mm. and just focus on that walking back to his mark because he might have, he probably did have a load of self-doubts and, and whatever going through his head. He might have bought a particularly bad ball or he might be going through a bad spell. Mm. But by just, just by focusing on, on that behavior, like you're saying there, like, forcing himself to look up it automatically mm -hmm. gives him uh, a sort of more positive body language makes yeah. him look like he's more in control of what he's trying to do yeah. uh, and clearly there's an element there's a huge element in, in cricket of of the sort of um the contest between bat and ball and it's not just the physical skill uh, it's not just the the technical skills it's the stuff that goes on upstairs in between the ears as well so that that sort of resonated when you were talking about that there yeah. And sometimes it could be used just as an external cue. So for example, if a cricketer is getting really, um, some of them say to me, they switch off, you know, we're all different. Some of them say they completely just zone out and switch off and they get so encompassed and so engrossed in their own game is that they're not aware of anything else going on. And obviously that can catch them out. For example, when you're batting, like you need to be aware of everything. So sometimes uh, we've put in processes to get them to sort of, get out of themselves, get out of their own heads. 
and to pick an external cue so like one of them has a cue which is like what where's the furthest person away in the crowd um and just as a bit of a like wake up call kind of thing um so we can use different sensory cues for different things um but also sensory is really important for visualization so i'll say to players if you want to visualize something the best thing to do is to visualize um an actual real life experience that's the best place to start because it's much harder to visualize something hypothetical. You know, what does next week look like against Sussex? I'm not entirely sure. So better to start with something you've done and always visualize something that went well. Because actually it just becomes counterproductive when we're visualizing our worst days and then trying to rectify it. It's, it's really hard. Um, so visualize one of your best performances, probably one of the ones that sticks with you. So Sometimes some of the, the pros will say to me, well, it was actually a, a day when I was 18 years old. And I'll say, why? Um, and I'll explain, it was just a, a real big moment for them and, and specific processes from that day really stick. So then we talk about um, tapping into the sensory. Um, so it's like a multi-sensory approach. So we're looking at touch, sound, taste, smell, because that helps us first of all, draw the memory from the actual day and yeah. um, also helps us collate specific processes that were attached to that day that worked. Amazing. And do you have any tips for anyone listening then on how they can get best go about um, trying to improve this aspect of their game? Yeah. So I'd say always, if you haven't visualized before to start with recordings, so whether that's you want to use a recording from a training session, if you're visualizing a training session, um or, or get obviously recordings and snippets from actual match day performances that really helps and then almost i think what's really good is have a conversation with your psych or your coach or just with yourself about what your ideal looks like um for example collating the ideal bowling routine and what that looks like on your best day so almost have a bit of a plan before you actually start the visualization so you really know what you're going to visualize so you're clear on it because a lot of people just go in gung-ho and they go oh it didn't really work or it didn't really stick with me um because they didn't really have a plan and then i think when making goals of like well, what do we want what do we want from this batting routine what do i want from this bowling routine is start with the end in sight so like what do i want to achieve so quite often it's what i'm missing so if I'm not very confident, naturally, it's the end in sight is to look confident in my process. Or, for example, a player that's too engaged and too threatful. The end in sight is to look calm, poised, this sort of silent assassin. That's the end in sight. Um, and then work backwards from that. So what do I want to achieve? What does it look like? Work backwards from it to make the plan before you do it. Think about the obstacle, the obstacles getting in your way. Um, so often it's, it's themselves getting in their own way. What is that? Is it their feelings, their thoughts, their judgments, their threats, their expectations, thinking about external expectations, those kind of things. Um, also, as I said before, always visualize positive experiences, um, our best performances. Uh, it's a good place to start. And yeah, think about what mode you want to be in. So sometimes I've, I talk to the players about warrior mode or assassin mode. Like, what do you want to be? Do you want to like tap into the battle because you're getting a bit complacent and you're switching off a bit? Or are you getting 
too aroused on that level of sort of like too engaged to everything going on that it's becoming counterproductive we need to downregulate, which is actually more the secret silent assassin you know yeah. the calm poised but like silently confident um so we just sort of have conversations around those kind of things and then think about what self-talk might be useful in those moments what words might be useful power words those kind of things and then viewpoint of visualization would be start off in first person in you you're doing it and then you can play around with being on the sidelines as a spectator watching yourself and then you can even try bird's eye view watching down on yourself okay so there's different ways you can kind of play around with that but yeah that's probably cool. a few tips anyway yeah that's really interesting uh, hopefully people have got something from that so Last question for you before you can finish for the day. It's late afternoon on the Friday. So what do you think is the single most important quality that a sports psychologist needs to possess? Wow. Um, didn't prep for that question. <laughs> what is the most important quality? I think you've just got to be able to almost not, not be worried about anything and just be open to jumping into new situations and being flexible adaptable um i think all the environments i work in are very very different yeah from when I'm working with physios into working with business people uh working with girls with teams um or sort of a a big a bigger squad um with with men um so i think yeah being adaptable interchangeable and, and just i think being people related like being able to just have a conversation with anyone and, and being able to engage in conversation and to be just a familiar face to be around and, and someone that can be, I suppose, approachable, um, where quite often I think it is the kind of informal conversations are the most important ones, you know, over lunch, after a training session. Yeah. And just being able to have a chat with them. And that's what it's all about. It's not about, oh, your time slots at two o'clock, go and see Camilla. It's not like that at all. It's very yeah. much those chats on the coach, uh, chats at breakfast time before a match you know some of them are feeling a bit nervous it's just having a chat um in those sort of informal settings um so you've got to be able to just adapt i suppose in in all those different scenarios cool excellent well i really enjoyed that so thanks again for your time and you can stop working now you can clock off thanks That's thank you very much thanks for having me yeah. on no worries speak to you soon Well, there you go, guys. That was episode three of the Performance Principles podcast. Thanks again for listening. I hope you were able to take something away from the brilliant insight there provided by Camilla. Uh, don't forget to like and share the podcast if you're still enjoying it. And don't forget you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify as well. Also, recommend it to friends and family if you think they'll enjoy it. And get in touch with us on Instagram and Twitter if you have any questions or any queries. Again, you'll find us at four underscore principles. So feel free to get in touch with us there. And that's about it for now. Thanks again and tune in again next time. Cheers. Mm -hmm.